The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. People internally note that basically the tactics being used by the anti vax people are the same ones being used by the Stop the Steal movement are the same ones being used by the anti-vax people regarding measles. And so, like, it's pretty clear there is a pattern here and there are some sort of areas of open weakness. And I guess I think that's the part that I think is is sort of was frustrating to a lot of people is that this was the fourth, fifth, sixth time in a row in the U.S. context alone that Facebook had seen this sort of behavior producing harm. But they haven't really figured out a way that they're comfortable with to rein it in. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 23rd, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. We'll be talking about the Facebook files, a series of stories by the Wall Street Journal about Facebook's failures to mitigate harms on its platform. There's a lot of critical reporting about Facebook out there, but what makes the journal series different is that it's based on documents from within the company itself. Memos from researchers within Facebook, identifying problems based on hard data, proposing solutions that Facebook leadership then fails or refuses to implement, and contradicts in public statements. One memo literally reads, we are not actually doing what we say we do publicly. To discuss the journal's reporting, Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Jeff Horwitz, a technology reporter at the paper, who obtained the leaked documents and led the team reporting the Facebook files. So what was it like reporting the series? What's Jeff's response to Facebook's pushback? And why is there so much discontent within the company? It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 23rd. Inside the Facebook Files. Jeff, thank you for joining us. You had a pretty insane week last week. You published five blockbuster stories as part of a series that the Wall Street Journal is calling The Facebook Files, uh, which is based on a lot of internal documents from within the company that were given to you. First off, I'm just curious about your thoughts to the reaction to the stories. There was a, a lot of praise for the reporting, a lot of conversations about Facebook, lawmakers taking note, Facebook pushing back. Is this the kind of reaction that you were expecting or was there anything that surprised you about it? Well, I like praise. So let's start with that part. I guess, I, yeah, I was, I was very flattered by the level of attention it got. Look, all of these subjects are really interesting subjects and studied externally are really interesting. Obviously, there is an extra cachet to the fact that this is the company's own understanding of what the hell it's doing in the world, right? Because I think 
you know, human trafficking and cartels on the platforms. Yep, we knew about it. You know, Facebook making people angrier. We kind of knew about it. Instagram not being great for teenage girls. Also strongly suspected it. And people have talked about it. Facebook being nice to people who are in power also kind of knew about it. But I think the thing that is, is sort of meaningful about all this stuff is that this is the company's own understanding of what it's doing. And in some respects, it's the harms that result are worse than candidly, even someone like me might have expected. Yeah, I completely agree that that was the differentiating factor. We've read, you know, uh, hundreds of stories in a similar vein, um, and we'll get into the specifics in a minute. But what distinguished this story was you had people inside the company saying pretty much everything that people outside the company have been saying for a while. Except meaner, weirdly. Yes. <laughs> Neutrally and meaner. And more despondent, maybe. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. It was it was a veritable like treasure trove of of international documents. Um, and one of the problems with studying Facebook, of course, that I have run into time and time again, is a it's a famously secretive company. And so, you know, how did you get the documents, and how did you feel when they were dumped on you? Yeah. So the the getting of documents details are obviously somewhat sensitive there, given that the entities that provided them to us have chosen not to reveal themselves. Um, but I would say, look, like it's not going to be a surprise that given the range of topics covered there, that the source of this stuff, you know, was in the integrity type operation of Facebook, right? And integrity, as you know, is this extremely broad term that kind of includes everything from like content quality to spam to, you know, like whether there is a genocide going on that might or might not have something to do with uh, social media. And I think the reason why we've seen a whole bunch of information coming out of those organizations inside Facebook, it's not just that those folks, you know, are just like somehow chattier than everyone else. I think the thing is that People there have been asked to tackle some really, really serious problems, like more serious, I think, than Facebook, that, you know, obviously that Facebook understands and the outside world does. And they've come up with solutions or what they believe to be at least mitigations. And then they have a hard time getting them through. And I think you'll, you know, in the kind of the response to this whole series, you'll see on the kind of on Twitter, you know, I. I've been really gratified to see a whole bunch of people who know this area really, really well and because they worked in it for years, basically taking the company to task for, you know, because when the company pushes back on a reporting, says things are cherry picked, says that, you know, the reason they didn't do things is because they were bad ideas or that, you know, the cure was worse than, worse than the disease. You know, a whole bunch of former integrity people have just started popping up saying, like, say what now? Like, where the hell are you coming up with that from, right? And and I think that's something really valuable and important. So I, I guess I'd say I sort of feel like, yes, there was a lot of work that went into this in terms of getting the documents and, you know, sort of building relationships in which there was enough trust for that to happen. But that said, there's like a pretty strong sense of pressure, I think, on some folks internally to make sure information like this gets out because they don't feel like it's being handled right internally. And do you have a sense of why the person or people who gave you these documents chose you and the the journal in particular? I think 
focus on the international work that we've done. We've done some stuff on India is a big piece of it. And just kind of a sense of looking at the platform in multiple contexts and not just being about all about the US all the time. But, you know, also a lot of wooing, I would say, is that I think when speaking to people who are at the company or or previously at the company and have lots of information, there really is an auditioning process. And, you know, you, you really do need to demonstrate that you know your stuff, that you are not just hoping to, you know, kick the company in the pants and snigger about it, you know, that there's kind of a broader context that you're aware of. So, you know, I, I don't think I'm by any means the only person who could have done this job in the world, but maybe some combination of, of past work approach. And, you know, I don't also don't want to underestimate that, you know, talking to the Wall Street Journal is is a pretty good outlet to talk to, right? So that's kind of, you know, it's not just me, if that makes sense. And and I mean, and, and the resources we were able to bring into this thing were pretty amazing, right? Like there were a staff of, in terms of the crazy week I had last week, it was crazy, but it was also possible because there were a team of six reporters who'd been doing this stuff for quite a while with me, right? So we all got through it and that was awesome. But you know, I think just the resources the journal was able to put into it. My my guess is had something to do with this. I, I don't, you know, I, I kind of try not to look gift horses in the mouth too much, but I, I, it certainly seems like that's part of it. Yeah, the production side of it actually was extremely impressive, by the way. Um, the It was very pretty and the podcast and the rollout was all... Uh, I can all, take all no credit for suave. any of that, but yes, those people are really good at their jobs. Um, I actually really want to come back to that India story that you mentioned, because uh, I actually think that that's some of the most important reporting on Facebook in the past few years, perhaps, you know, on, on par or even maybe more than, than this series. Um, but before we get to that, I do think it would be useful to give listeners sort of a brief overview of the five stories just in case they haven't read them um they should definitely go check them out we gave me this question because i speak too fast so we're just gonna if you can forgive the the spiel i'll go through them quickly the first one was about a cross-check system that facebook said was intended to be a quality assurance measure for content moderation of really high profile accounts but because of the way it was implemented it meant that famous people accounts were often protected from enforcement uh the second as you mentioned was about instagram's effect on teens and teenage girls in particular. Uh, The third was about the infamous algorithm uh, and changes that Facebook made to the newsfeed in 2018 that it said was encouraging meaningful social interactions, but which internal research showed was promoting outrage and sensationalism. Uh, The fourth was about Facebook operations in developing countries, like you said, that international picture, which is really so important because it confirmed what we all know, um, which is that Facebook devotes far less attention and resources to develop countries and that can really have quite disastrous and devastating results. Uh, And finally, on the fifth day of of the Facebook files, um, you published a story about Facebook's pandemic response and how it was grappling with anti-vaccine content. So, I mean, that's that's huge. Would you say that's a fairly accurate description of the of the five stories? Yeah, I think the fifth one was like, honestly, was less about the company's pandemic response and it just was about the company's apparent struggle to recognize how its own tools were going to get used against it. It really didn't seem like it was prepared 
for something that I think from people outside, like Renee DiResta from the Stanford Internet Observatory, like considered to be totally obvious, which is that the anti-vaccine people who'd been very successful at using Facebook's products to spread an anti-vaccine message were also going to be very successful at spreading an anti-COVID vaccine message on the platform too. And that, you know, I think Facebook kind of ended up scrambling um, early this year and some kind of hopes and dreams that it had for its role in the overall pandemic certainly were challenged more than the company expected. So we've already talked about how I think what makes this line of reporting really different from a lot of what we've seen before is the fact that you had documents from researchers within Facebook. And I do want to dwell on that a little bit because as you commented before, like the researchers are really not holding back. I mean, they're they're identifying these problems because they're within the company. They're able to actually point to hard data about the problems in a way where people outside the company can mostly just kind of say, seems like there's something wrong here. And they propose solutions that Facebook either struggles to implement or refuses to implement, sometimes because the solutions are conflicting with other priorities, sometimes because the problems are genuinely hard. I thought your your story about Instagram was really damning precisely because it showed that the company misled the public about the state of its own internal research. But I did want to ask about one of the counter arguments that I've seen from Facebook about this, which is saying, you know, look, like we're doing the research, right? Like you got these documents because there were people inside the company who were looking into these problems and who sort of had the authority to really dig in and put together these reports. So if your framing is kind of like, look, Facebook knew what it was doing, then Facebook is kind of saying, yeah, we do. And we're trying to work on these problems. So what's your response to that critique? If a tree falls in the woods and nobody hears, dot, dot, dot. I think, look, yes, the company deserves a lot of credit for having done the work originally and for letting people explore this. I mean, candidly, sometimes this was people, these were, shall we say, passion projects and outside of people's normal lines of work. But absolutely, this work did get done and Facebook deserves credit for that. That said, just studying, looking yourself in the mirror doesn't, doesn't do much. And I mean, they've done that. Obviously, I think the concern is, and I think we've laid out a number of different ways where the company clearly could be doing more and could be doing better um, by its own acknowledgement. And and also instances where the company's made trade-offs where simply, you know, yes, it's aware that it's doing harm, but on the other hand, it's good for its business and it doesn't want to change that. So I think that the question of sort of research and internally is absolutely, yes, like I don't know any other social media platform has looked itself in the mirror quite as thoroughly as Facebook has on a lot of these fronts. And that's a good thing. That said, you know, there isn't a prize for introspection. You have to do something about it. I also want to talk a little bit more about that last piece that you mentioned, the piece about vaccine hesitancy on Facebook, because I think it gets to an important distinction between problems that Facebook researchers identified and that the platform's leadership made a choice not to fix and problems that they may be trying to address, but are just genuinely hard to solve. Um, So on that last story about vaccine misinformation, for example, you have these documents showing that Researchers were extremely aware of the problem of vaccine hesitancy, but I came away feeling like you'd sort of sketched a really detailed portrait of an organization that is dysfunctionally trying to address a tough problem. Just because 
by its very nature, the question of what to do about, you know, comments on a Facebook post that are sort of communicating vaccine hesitancy is harder than the question of, you know, should you take down posts by a drug cartel? Should you take down posts by groups engaging in human trafficking, to use some other examples? So how do you think about that line between a problem that Facebook is struggling to solve and a problem that Facebook has decided not to solve? And how did that affect how you framed the story in your reporting? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's one that I think we are going to be revisiting a little bit later on. We are not done with these stories. That said, to sort of answer it for the moment, yes, you know, there's no question that Facebook did sort of rush into the fray once it realized how blind it was on some of these things, right? I think the thing that was amazing to me was just that literally adding into February of this year, you know, with the vaccine really starting to roll out, not yet to the general public, but obviously being, you know, kind of widely, widely discussed. And, you know, we'd seen this moment coming for months. The company didn't even have a way to reliably measure COVID-related stuff in comments, even though it understood that comments were like accounting for hundreds of millions of views a day on the platform. Like, I I think that, that there's the question of whether Facebook can sort of rein in things once they've already gone south. And obviously the company has invested in that capacity and I think is continuing to invest. And, and again, like that's something that we'll, we'll get to a little bit later uh, in our work. But there's also the question just of, of are they providing tools in a way that just tend to be irresponsibly used, right? I mean, it's kind of the like, are you just scattering knives around the playground? It's possible that those are going to be actually very useful, but it could also be a problem too, right? And and so I think that that's something that the company kind of, they've offered the products first, and then they've sort of figured out what the downfalls are later and tried to mitigate them. But in some respects, that makes the people doing safety and quality work kind of your cleanup staff. And I think as well, that's something that really bothered a lot of people who are inside the company, right? Is that the company was going to do what the company was going to do. And it was on the integrity team to figure out how to like prevent disaster from transpiring as a result. Yeah, I want to pick up on that. But before I do, I just want to underline the point that you made as well about the pandemic response and not even having any measures in place to observe or measure what was going on on their platform, because that was their response in in response to requests for information in particular from the Biden administration was that they weren't tracking particular metrics. And it's like, well, if your response to the Facebook files is, hey, look, we were looking for this and trying to work out what our problems were and address them then the response to the pandemic response is, well, we just didn't look. Um, and so we don't have your information. I, I don't, I'm not sure how convincing I find that given that, you know, it's no, it should be no surprise that people wanted to know what was happening on Facebook during the pandemic. So I find that especially unconvincing. Yeah. And this is, this is something that like, I mean, it's worn thin, I think both internally and externally, you know, people internally note that basically the tactics being used by the anti-vax people are the same ones being used by the Stop the Steal movement are the same ones being used by the militia movement, are the same ones being used by the QAnon movement, are the same ones being used by the anti-vax people regarding measles. And so like, it's pretty clear there is a pattern here and there are some sort of areas of open weakness. And I guess, I think that's the part that, that I think is, is sort of was frustrating to a lot of people is that 
depending on when you want to start, you know, this was the fourth, fifth, sixth time in a row in the U.S. context alone that Facebook had seen this sort of behavior producing harm. But they haven't really figured out a way that they're comfortable with to rein it in. Like they have ways to rein it in and they, they also could just slow down the platform and that would help too. But they don't really want to do that. Yeah. And I think that point's really important because your story is really focused on both of those things, the, the organizational structure and the also the sort of platform structure and dynamics rather than, you know, we've read a billion stories in the last few years about how either individual posts or a bunch of posts or particular groups were in violation of Facebook's rules or Facebook's rules weren't, you know, substantively addressing particular problems. But your stories, I don't, to my mind, didn't focus on that and dug up sort of the bigger issues which were those sort of organizational structures that were going to impede progress, no matter how good Facebook's rules were. I I wonder if you could talk a bit about what your reporting showed about the organizational structure of the company in particular, why it might be unique in this space and what you heard from employees about that in particular. So if you look at the kind of top level org charts of major tech companies, Facebook does really stand out in a few ways. One way is that it does seem like operations is kind of tied into growth in a way that it's a little surprising. And then the other thing is that content policy and public policy, public policy basically being lobbying government relations, all sort of report through the same channel. And, you know, that's something that I think has been a lot of frustration, has been a frustration to a lot of people inside the company too, because it seemed like it was just making very transparently apparent, you know, clear that the company really did wish to have its PR and government affairs people involved in oversight of the platform. Um, I mean, that's kind of, that's the reason you have that structure, period. And, And I think that upset a lot of people doing integrity stuff because of the idea is if we're trying to set up rules that are going to be used for the governance of the platform and that don't require, you know, executive level interventions, why don't you just let us do that? Yeah, I like to call this uh, separation of powers for the platform era, like get government and growth out of the way, make sure that they can't interfere with the people that you're charging with writing and enforcing the rules on the platform, because they just obviously have different and conflicting priorities, which is, you know, one of the biggest problems in this space. There was a, I mean, I think a really interesting conversation on Twitter after some of the stuff we published between Samir Jakavati, the the former head of the civic team, and... Katie Harbath, who was on the politics team, in which basically, like, Samir was like, look, like, separating public policy, you know, public policy did seem like they were kind of putting a lot of pressure in undue fashions onto the operation. I'm paraphrasing here. And Katie's response was like, don't be so sure it was all public policy, basically, like, as in look to leadership. It was a really interesting, it was a really interesting discussion. And I'm I'm really hoping we're going to see some more of that, because I think, I think the question of like, look, is is like Joel Kaplan, you know, the guy behind everything, that is definitely way simplistic. I think that sort of thinking out the role of leadership and also just the role of product, right? The product people, uh, the folks who really don't like the idea of a 0.2% hit to any metric related to growth whatsoever. Like, I think the influence of those folks inside the company is also notable. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you 
constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. What do you make of the fact that all these former Facebook folks are having these conversations, as you said, like on Twitter, out in the open? It struck me as kind of a, a signal, perhaps, of what you're describing in terms of, you know, people are genuinely frustrated with the company and there's maybe not the same level of restraint that you might have if things hadn't gotten as bad as they were. But maybe I'm misreading that. I don't know. What do you think? No, I, I think that's I think that you're definitely not misreading that. Right. Like, uh, you know, there, there have been people who are just straight up former people who did amazing work who are just straight up responding to Nick Clegg and just sort of casting doubt on the things he's saying. So, I mean, that's, I mean, that's an incredible thing. I, I think that the timing of all this is in some ways really lucky because there is, you know, after the 2020 election in the months following like Facebook, first of all, disbanded its civic team um, and sort of, you know, a whole bunch of people either moved into the roles or left the company, but, just there's, I think a whole bunch of people did kind of, they were trying to hold things together. And I think they were trying to just sort of do what they could inside the system. And this is kind of the first generation of people who have ever dealt with these problems, right? Like, I guess, and I'm not exactly sure how I would define them, but I would say that like the line of work is information ecosystem technocrat and, and like applied, you know, it, with a very much applied science approach. And that is something that like nobody, people outside the platforms have been trying to study this stuff for longer than the platforms have. And I would say that kind of like the first generation of people who pioneered this stuff is all of a sudden out from underneath NDAs and in a position to talk. And, uh, you know, like in terms of like, before we get to the inevitable, Jeff, what do you think Facebook should do? Like my response to that is going to be like, go talk to those folks. They're brilliant. I've seen their work. Like the people who did this stuff, I really hope have a very high profile role in public life and that it continues indefinitely because, you know, like you can see what the public debate is about the issues that Facebook faces. And then you can see what the internal discussion is. And like one of them's way smarter than the other right now. And that's, you know, kind of on me as, you know, in my profession, as well as everybody else and Congress and so forth. But like, there's a lot of ground to cover. And ideally, we'll do it pretty quickly. Damn it, Jeff, spoilers. I mean, why would anyone stick around to the end of this episode now if you're uh, not going to solve the entire problem <laughs> I'm not for gonna us? Do it. You know, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so I, I, you know, 
there's that really interesting thing that you just sort of framed about the first generation of um, information ecosystem technocrats and the second generation. And I think one of the ways that we're seeing that play out in the debates as well is maybe the first generation we were obsessed with, you know, what I was talking about before, which was the substantive rules and the individual posts and things like that. And we're now getting more sophisticated in the way that we're talking about that and looking at the overall design of Facebook, which is far more important than any individual rule. I mean, I think this is something that you and I connected over originally, which is sort of the futility of focusing on that takedown, leave up binary of content moderation and the need to look behind that. And you sort of referenced it before about the the conflict within the company between product and trust and safety and integrity, which in particular, your story about the algorithm, uh, day three of, of Christmas. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about that, specifically what that reporting showed. Yeah. So that was basically, there was this concept called time well spent, which was Tristan Harris and Center for Humane Technology kind of pushed it. And I think it's an interesting idea, just the idea that basically systems that encourage you to passively scroll probably are not good for your mental health. And that's, I think, pretty well borne out. That said, Facebook, so Facebook kind of tried to take a cue from that and they introduced the idea of meaningful social interaction. And the idea was that they were going to prioritize content first that came from friends and families, friends and family of users. And second of all, that they were going to prioritize content that was high engagement. And, you know, like you weren't going to passively scroll. It was going to be stuff that you were going to be commenting on, resharing, you know, issuing emojis or, you know, putting emojis on and so forth. And they sort of frame this as like a entirely social good based thing that was going to hit, you know, their, their user metrics and time spent on the platform would go down. And that is true, but there was another reason too, which is that the company had internal data showing that commenting and other forms of engagement were tanking. And this is like a potentially existential problem for a social media platform, because if people aren't commenting and liking and sharing, then People are going to stop producing content. And if people stop producing content, what the hell is it that your platform does again? So they had their reasons to do this. And they basically just essentially went for systems that were going to goose engagement. It wasn't the first time they'd done engagement-based ranking, but they really upped it. And, you know, I think they didn't necessarily understand when they were first putting this together, the degree to which the type of content that was really high engagement and that was like reliably able to get high engagement was angry that, you know, the things like hate bait and, you know, incendiary and divisive political stuff, that stuff does fantastic on, on pretty much any metric of, of engagement. People share it, you know, and, and, and I think in some respects they ended up, well, I shouldn't even say, I think um, by Facebook's own analyses, the changes they made incentivized angry content. And that was true for both publishers. Jonah Peretti of BuzzFeed actually wrote to the head of Facebook's newsfeed in 2019 and just basically saying, like, please stop. Like, you guys are basically creating terrible incentives that are bad for journalism, bad for our quality. Like, if, we, if our people want to get read, then, you know, they have to do these things that are not good. And the same it also applied to political parties. Like, Facebook's researchers actually got told by Spanish and... Polish political parties, and I think heard similar things in India as well, that the changes they had made really rewarded like punch them in the mouth type rhetoric. And in fact, that the platforms were changing not just the way they spoke on Facebook to be more negative and hostile, 
but like literally were changing their platforms in some instance to be more hostile. And, you know, this was just sort of people who were responding. And I think this is something like Evelyn that, you know, you you see, and I don't think it, it gets talked enough about in terms of integrity stuff, which is that when Facebook makes changes to its platform and how it ranks things, most of us just go about our lives. We continue posting the same content we put, we posted before. Like we still post vacation photos. We still like our friends' comments, you know, things like that. However, there is a subset of users who are, I, mean, I guess, kind of professionals, right? Whether they're Macedonian troll farms or uh, foreign governments or just like people who are truly desperate for attention and want to build a social media following that respond very differently. When Facebook makes changes, they jump on it. They are constantly iterating. If something doesn't work, they try the next thing. And so there's this interesting element in which there is this kind of adversarial element and some of Facebook's best users, quote unquote, like the most active ones on the platform are also the ones most invested in trying to undermine the company's own integrity issues. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a, a weird dynamic. So I want to ask you why we should trust you. And, you know, this comes in a couple of ways. The first is that a bunch of these documents are, are a little bit dated. You know, they're from a couple of years ago. And so that invites the obvious response from the company, which is, yes, we identified these problems a couple of years ago, um, but we've since addressed them. And so, you know, have you seen documents that would suggest that? Or, you know, have you been looking for documents showing one way or the other whether that's true? And then also whether, you know, I, I guess in a company the size of Facebook, you could find an employee or two saying anything one way or the other, you know, maybe they had a bad day or, or whatever. And they, um, Oh they yeah. Yeah. Water, water cooler chat. Let me cut you off there though. This yeah, is not great. that. This is, okay. this is absolutely not that these are people who are doing the jobs that Facebook hired them to do and reporting back on it. Um, in some instances, they are quite senior. And I would say that by and large, the stuff that they are calling out hasn't been corrected. And and like, yes, some of these documents are years old. Some of them are months old and not that many months. I think there's one exception to this, right? Like, which is the cross-check program. And there they were working hard to fix this. They acknowledged it in 2019 internally that this program was just a goddamn mess and entirely unacceptable. Quote, we are not doing uh, what we say we do publicly. And, you know, this is posing harms to users and, you know, this is a breach of trust, like all direct quotes from Facebook's own review of the program. And they did work to improve it. They didn't work that quickly because they had the 2020 election coming up and they definitely didn't want to expose high profile users to um, things that might irritate them in that time period because Facebook just wanted to stay the hell out of it. So that one is one where I think I think there's probably a good case to be made that they are improving rapidly. It's a little awkward. They have been unwilling to talk to me about that because, you know, I think what they said to the oversight board is a little, it's a little awkward to talk about metrics when the company wouldn't previously provide metrics to its own oversight board. But aside from that, the other ones, these are all live issues. Every single thing in here is, you know, I, I think I can say pretty conclusively is still a concern. So, you know, and I think that's, that's kind of been, you know, Facebook's response traditionally has been, you know, well, like, oh, that thing that you found out about is now fixed. And I think one of the values of the work that we did is that we can see that they, like problems going unaddressed literally for years. 
and only being addressed in the case of, say, the human trafficking stuff, when an outside entity like Apple decides that it's going to issue an ultimatum and threaten to kick the big blue app and Instagram off the platform if they don't fix the problem immediately, which they did do, and then it got bad again. So since we're talking about Facebook's responses to your reporting, I did want to ask about the sort of dynamic between Facebook and journalists, not just you, but journalists more broadly, because I think the the discourse around the platform can definitely get heated, I guess I would say. I think journalists often seem to really enjoy attacking Facebook, even sometimes for things that the platform necessarily isn't actually doing wrong, but that's certainly not the case with your reporting. Facebook seems to enjoy hitting back and we kind of go around and around. And one of the things that I really appreciated about the series and that we've been digging into is that you generally seemed quite careful in your representations and you've been really open on Twitter about engaging with opposing views and criticism of your reporting. So I'm curious how you thought about kind of walking that line of giving Facebook scrutiny that it so severely needs without falling into the trap of kind of becoming part of the negative tech press perpetual motion machine. Oh, you know, I'm, it does feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm fairly negative on some of these things. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm not sure I deserve full credit on that front. But look, like part of that is just simply giving the due to the work that got done by people inside the company. I mean, it's not like the people who were doing integrity work are just a whole bunch of like saps who got, you know, tricked into doing it and it was all waste of their time. These people did amazing work and they did really smart things. And yes, they did it in many instances because Facebook allowed them to. And so I think there's like, that's an important thing to just begin with is like respect for that work kind of doesn't let me say, you know, like it's not compatible with like, well, Mark Zuckerberg just cares about money and, you know, blah, 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 you know, like boosting conservatives, blah, 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 or, you know, boosting liberals. Like that stuff's trash. And I mean, the level of thinking that people are doing internally is a lot better. And so I think it's important that that be respected. And, you know, also some people who are pretty influential to my thinking about this stuff, you know, I definitely recall being told that their help, they would view it as having been a waste if the only thing that came out of this was that people hated the company more. Uh, You know, like, it's not a favor to them. They're right. So... Ironically, I think Facebook is maybe not doing what you might want it to do in responding to your reporting, because I think there, you know, there's a world in which they come out and they say, these are problems, we're addressing them, you know, we're respectfully considering this critique, etc. But instead, on Saturday, Nick Clegg, who you previously mentioned, who's Facebook's vice president of global affairs, published a blog post titled, What the Wall Street Journal Got Wrong. Which had remarkably few allegations of correctable errors, if you might know. Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to ask you about that. Um, So it, it sort of makes these vague statements about, you know, you attributed false motives, you cherry picked quotes, you mischaracterized research. What did you make of the of that response, that kind of aggressive response? And also, um, I am curious what you made of the fact that it didn't specifically identify errors that they're mad about. Look, like the people who do comms over there are professionals. I do not harbor any grudges against how they've handled this stuff. So I, I, I don't begrudge Nick Clegg the right to publish whatever the hell he wants to publish about our work and to, you know, criticize it in whatever fashion he thinks is most appropriate. I would say like 
on a few responses, like in particular on the cross-check story, I was a little disappointed because it seemed like the effort was to sort of suggest that this was actually not new material and had been, you know, was basically the same thing as the company's political misinformation exemption or ex misinformation exemption for political figures, which it most certainly was not. And the company understands that. But, I, I, you know, I, I guess I'd say, like, it's definitely not cherry picked. There are, I mean, I think the depth of stuff we've got and the stories reflect that this is not a random quote or two from someone who's frustrated. This is sort of the current state of the company's thinking and and a, a company's self-awareness. So, you know, I, I guess I'd say, like, I'd love it if there is more discussion with the company. And I'm also hoping that some of the former employees who've been popping up on Twitter and elsewhere might be able to force a more meaningful discussion of the work's strengths and weaknesses, which some of them have been doing candidly. And, and that's something that I think there's probably something for me to learn from. But yeah, in short, like, it's fine. I, I, I guess I don't know, sort of, maybe I'm missing something. Is there, is there what, what am I missing that you were asking about in that thing? Because it just, you know, like, okay, they, they had this statement. I don't entirely understand why they issued it on Saturday. But, you know, they seem like they're, they're being professionals. So I don't really mind that they're doing it. Just, you know, however they wish to play, if that makes sense. No, I mean, I don't really think you're missing anything at all. I read it and I was kind of like, is really, is this all you have? Um, I was, I was surprised, you, you know, you keep emphasizing that they're professionals, but it was, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what they hope to achieve or what they did achieve with that. Yeah. And, and luckily it's not my job to have to figure that out. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think it's, it's up to them to make the best case for the company and, you know, and that's, that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that they will work with me on some things going forward, because I, I do think that there are a whole bunch of stories where candidly they are in difficult circumstances and, and they're doing the best they can. Not everything is a failure um, internally by any means. Some things they do respond to correctly. I think we certainly highlighted some very big areas, like kind of existentially important ones where it feels like the company maybe hasn't lived up to its public commitments. But I, I'm I guess I'm hoping that there's that there is a constructive relationship to be had. That's that's the only hope I've got on this front. And and I, you know, again, I, I don't even know that I view a, a statement criticizing us to be at odds with that. They can do that. That's fine. Okay, so now for the weekly, but what about YouTube segment of this podcast? I'm curious why you think Facebook's always the one that finds itself in the position most recently of responding to these kinds of stories. I mean, just again, completely at random, YouTube is uh, as, as big a platform, by some measures a bigger platform, and it just hasn't seemed to have had so many leaks as, as Facebook has recently. I'm wondering if you have any theories about why that might be. Are they less... Yeah frustrated? Do they do less research? What do you, what do you think? I mean, oh, look, I, I think, I think definitely do less re research would be a strong guess. But again, I, I do not cover the company, so I can't say for certain. I do think that Facebook has done more. One thing I think that might explain that a bit, Evelyn, is that Facebook's work to even understand the prevalence of problems on its platform, it only goes back a few years in terms of like, I mean, they started trying it in 2017, started trying to get a better handle on it. It was 2019 before they were like had some of the metrics that are at this point foundational to their efforts to sort of detect bad content and what, you know, and sort of classify it and, and track it. Um, they didn't have those tools in place. 
And those are first text and then photo-based tools. And as you know, video is a hell of a lot harder. So I would imagine that one reason why we have not seen quite the same level of like stuff coming out of YouTube is that they're still, to the degree that they are studying it, I don't know that the findings are going to be as clean or as clear. Video's hard. And, you know, Facebook only in the last couple of years really was able to start measuring some of the stuff that we're writing about. So I would suspect that YouTube, it's going to take a little while longer. It is interesting that, you know, one of the negative potential consequences within Facebook, and I think there's already been some indication of that, might be that Facebook just feels like it has an incentive to stop doing research because, you know, look at YouTube. The research can't leak if it doesn't exist, or maybe it locks down research more tightly within the company. So there's even, it's even harder to get to reporters. How did you think about that in your reporting? And have you, you know, seen any indications of that yet? I was very aware that people who were providing me with information, and they were aware, were walking through a door that probably would shut after them for good in some respects. I understand the concern that Facebook might be disinclined to do research into itself. And I, and I understand the concern about privacy of people, right? Like, I, I mean, that's the reason why we did not name researchers, even when, you know, there would have been useful color or things like that, because like, for the love of God, those people don't need that. And, you know, like, I, I don't want to have a chilling effect on their ability to discuss things with colleagues, which I think people perennially snooping in workplace kind of leads to. That said, like, I guess what I would say is that the current system of information and gathering and execution on it, both internal and external, is pretty well broken. Look, like, none of those stories would have been written if, in fact, the pro- all the problems were under control internally, right? They, they most certainly are not. And they're also, the information about them isn't making it out to people who might be in a position to start thinking about what societal obligations and rights everyone else ought to have in relation to this platform, right? Rather than just being like, let's do whatever basically Mark Zuckerberg thinks is most appropriate with it. And so I think absolutely there is going to be some pressure to not do research, but at the same time, my hope is that there will be pressure to provide better avenues of information gathering than this. Because like this, as awesome as it was to be a part of, is not sustainable and it's not replicable. And therefore, I think, like, I guess I'd say it's on everybody else to figure out how to make me and people like me less relevant in terms of getting absolutely essential information out of the platforms. So this is some of the most damning reporting uh, to my mind, um, which was, you know, in in one of the stories, you said that employees and contractors spent more than 3.2 million hours on finding misinformation and only 13% of those were spent on content outside the US. I can't for the life of me work out why they don't just throw more money at developing countries, although of course I can. Um, But I want to ask you about the reporting you've done on India, which is a, a different kind of problem as well to just not dedicating sufficient resources. But you found and, and highlighted 
one-sided uh, Facebook's relationship with the government there. So if you could just sort of outline that, because I really do think it is some of the most important reporting on the company in the last uh, few years. Thank you. So yeah, there, I mean, we did, the company is, I mean, we were writing about it at a time when the company was basically avoiding taking actions that its own safety team thought was appropriate because to remove people who were inciting bloodshed, uh, you know, basically anti-Muslim hatred on the platform. And Facebook basically was unwilling to stop these folks because they were connected to a the dominant power structure. And I think the thing that is what was interesting that happened after we published is that basically the Indian government, the BJP, as the ruling party of Modi, came down hard on all the platforms. And, you know, at this point, rather than Facebook kind of doing favors to avoid, you know, upsetting them, you know, they're also having their executives threatened with being thrown in jail. And I think it does highlight questions about what social media companies are going to be willing to tolerate to operate within the boundaries of countries that do not have remotely their values in terms of free speech. And, you know, it's a I think that's very much unresolved still. All right. We'll leave it there. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me, guys. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Gann. Our audio engineer was Hamza Shitu. Our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast on whatever app you use. And consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com lawfare. You'll gain access to an ad-free version of this podcast and weekly Lawfare live events for material supporters, along with other benefits. As always, thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.